Okay, so here we are in Lesson 2, entitled Solomon the Wise. We just laid the foundation and the groundwork for the Bible study on First and Second Kings, authorship, dating, structure, themes, typology, all that stuff in Lesson 1. So we're now ready to dive into Chapter 1, Verse 1, and we're going to do that now. There's a little bit of obstacles or speed bumps, you can say, for Solomon becoming king, and we're going to deal with that drama here in Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. So let's begin now by reading verses 1 through 4 and see what happens at the end of David's reign. And I would say really quickly, of course, obviously there's overlap. We mentioned this in the last lesson between 1 Kings and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, follows the trajectory of David's kingdom, his rise and his fall, if you want to look at that, and in the aftermath of his sin. And now at the end of 2 Samuel, the, the last thing that happened was, uh, was David's census and how that was sinful. And we talked about how Satan instigated that, God allows it, and, and David kind of falls flat on his face. And so he is left there in Jerusalem offering up a sacrifice uh, to atone for his sin and to stop the pestilence. So he's still alive at the end of 2 Samuel, as you probably well know. Um, but now as we open up to 1 Kings chapter 1, he is very old and he's on his way out, basically. Right? He's not the strong, vigorous warrior that he once was. All right, so let's read now then chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young maiden be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait upon the king and be his nurse. And let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful maiden throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite. I just love that name. I don't know why. Abishag the Shunammite. (laughs) And brought her to the king, and the maiden was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and ministered to him. But the king knew her not. All right, now we'll stop right there. King David is about 70 years, years old at this point. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, it says that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years at Hebron over Judah, seven years, six months, before he became king over all of Jerusalem for 33 years. So if you go back to 2 Samuel, it gives you these little details. If he reigned for 40 years after he was 30 years old when he started, then we're talking right now in the opening verses of chapter 1, verse 1 here in 1 Kings. He's about 70 years old, and he can't get warm. He's had a hard life. He's killed many people. He's established his authority. He's been running for his life for many years away from Saul. All of the drama that he dealt with probably left an impact on him. So... He is not doing so well. He can't get warm. And they didn't really have electric heater blankets back then or maybe not even hot water bottles. So the next best thing to an electric blanket is a really beautiful young maiden. And that's exactly what they did. They went and found Abishag the Shunammite, and she warmed him. Uh, It was not a sexual relationship. She was just a nurse keeping him warm with body heat and so on and so forth. Okay, so Abishag, the electric blanket, is helping him out. And while this, uh, it, while he's getting older and uh, becoming a little bit more frail and colder, it seems to be, his son Adonijah is seeking the throne. Uh, he's not meant to be the king, although many people think he is. He's seeking the throne. And, well, it seems to be he's seeking the throne for quite some time, and Dev- David never corrects him. So let's read on here, verses 5 and following, and see what's going on. So verse 5, Adonijah, the son of Agith, exalted himself. That's immediately a bad sign, by the way. He is exalting himself saying, I will be king, and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaniah, and Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray, and a bunch of other mighty men were not with Adonijah. 
In verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fatlings by the serpent stone, which is by Enrogel, and he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan or Benaniah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. All right, we'll end there with verse 10 here. So Adonijah is seeking the throne, and we immediately you see this contrast of him being, um, ex- he exalts himself. This is very much in connection with the big theme we saw throughout First and Second Samuel that begins with Hannah's beautiful canticle, this theme of reversals like we've seen, right, where God will bring down the mighty and lift up the lowly. So he is exalting himself, and later you're going to see Solomon the wise, I almost entitled as Solomon the humble and wise, because at least in the beginning of his reign, he is a humble man, and he knows he needs God's assistance to be king. And he was the one who allows his father David uh, and God himself to raise him up. So there's a big contrast between Adonijah here and Solomon, the one who exalts himself and is brought down, and then the one who is humbled and is brought up. Well, as we read these verses... It says that uh, David had never at any time displeased him by saying, why have you done thus and so? Because clearly he's setting up his own authority. And this also touches upon a theme in the Samuel books that we saw, especially 2 Samuel. King David had a big problem correcting his children. There's a lot of examples of this with Amnon and Absalom. Then, of course, his nephew, Joab. We're going to deal with him in just a second. Uh, there's various individuals within his, his kingdom, specifically in his household and his children. King David consistently had a disciplinary problem. And it seems right here, David didn't step up and say something, and he should have, because everything that Adonijah is doing is a big echo of what Absalom did. Now, if you remember the story of Absalom, Absalom rose up against his father and it didn't end well. And there's a lot of parallels going on here between Adonijah and Absalom to the point where Adonijah is a new Absalom. Now, it does say here that Adonijah was next after Absalom. So by all intents and purposes, by all appearances, it would seem that Adonijah was next in line. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, his, uh, David's first sons are born, and then you've got uh, Kaleb. In fact, I'm going to flip back here as quickly as I can to chapter 3. Verse 2, it says there were sons born to David at Hebron, because remember he ruled in Jerusalem, in, excuse me, he ruled in Judah first. Uh, his firstborn was Abnam, then it was Kaleb. Then it was Absalom, then Adonijah. All right, now Amnon is dead because we saw that whole story back in 2 Samuel when Absalom kills Amnon. Kaleb is presumed dead. We don't know anything about this boy at all. And then Absalom rises up against his father and then is ended up uh, getting his hair stuck up in the oak and Joab kills him, if you remember that story. So next in line is Adonijah. So like I say, by all appearances, people would seem to want us to support Adonijah. Right? Many do, but many don't. And that tells us already there is a split in allegiances where many folks do support Adonijah, but he doesn't get the support of some significant characters. He doesn't get everybody's support, and he certainly doesn't invite Solomon to this feasting and revelry because clearly he knows Solomon must have been the intended heir by their father, but he's exalting himself, trying to make his, himself the king. Right. So he is a new Absalom figure, and there's a lot of echoes. So immediately you see these echoes and him exalting himself. You know this is not going to go well. In Scripture, if you exalt yourself in pride and rebel against God's will, it's just not going to go so well. And that's exactly what's happening with Adonijah. But here in your notes, uh, looking at various commentaries, I put together some of the parallels for you. So Absalom and now Adonijah, both of them, so Adonijah is doing a bunch of things that echoes Absalom. Number one, he assembles a small army of horses and chariots and foot soldiers. That's what Absalom did, and I have the references in your notes if you want to go check that out. Uh, Adonijah is very handsome, just like Absalom was. 
Uh, next, number three, he invites key leaders to support him, specifically in this story, Joab, so that represents the military side, and Abiathar, which, who is one of the priests, that would be the priesthood side, and some others as well, but again, not everybody, not the mighty men, uh, not Nathan and others. Number four, he offers sacrifices for himself, like Absalom did. Number five, he rebels against the lawful king. So Absalom against his father, now Adonijah against Solomon. And I would even argue Adonijah rebels against David as well, his father, because David is still alive. And it's very clear by not inviting Solomon and then seeing how the rest of the story plays out, Adonijah knew Solomon was the intended heir by the by his father David and didn't follow his father's wishes. So you could make the connection that Adonijah rebels against David as well. All right, number six, Adonijah is good. Desi- we're going to see this in the next chapter, so we're a little ahead of ourselves. He does desire to take David's concubine, Abishag, the electric blanket, the hot water bottle. Um, it doesn't get her. We'll see how that plays out in a moment. But that's what Absalom did. He slept with his father's concubines. Uh, in broad daylight on top, top of the palace. So there's six parallels here, and there's a bonus one. So stay tuned. Don't, uh, I mean, if you have to pause to go do something else, great. But I'm going to give you a seventh bonus connection here uh, in chapter two that I think a lot of people haven't, I don't even know if anybody has made this connection. But so hang tight, and I'm going to share a seventh very important connection that Solomon's going to make uh, momentarily. All right. So it's not going to go well. He is a new Absalom character. And he's going to end up losing his life as a result. But nevertheless, he crowns himself king at a banquet, surrounded by his supporters. He's grasping at authority. This is not good. Meanwhile, now in verse 9, no, excuse me, in verse 10, Nathan the prophet comes to Bathsheba. And I'm just going to summarize this longer section here. Nathan says to Bathsheba, look, have you not heard what Adonijah has done? David doesn't know it. So go into David's presence and tell him what's going on. And then I'm going to come in after you and confirm your words, right? So it can kind of be a one-two punch happening. David's just trying to stay warm with Abishag and eating his soup or whatever he's doing. He has no idea what's going on. Although I think it's clear there were some warning signs previously and David did nothing. So now it's kind of coming to a head. So Bathsheba, uh, her name means daughter of the oath. We talked a lot about her, obviously, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when David took her to sleep with her. So Bathsheba goes in and says a bunch of stuff to King David. Help Lord, specifically in verse 17, uh, she says to David, My Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. All right. So Nathan says, remind him of his oath that he made to you. Now, we don't know exactly when David swore an oath by God to Bathsheba that Solomon would sit on the throne. It seems to be a little bit implied, many people will say, and I have a little footnote for you in the bottom of the page, that this might have happened in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when after everything happened with the adultery murder affair and the child that was conceived by David and Bathsheba had died, time goes on, David comforts Bathsheba and the Lord says that their second son will be named Solomon, which means peaceful. And it seems that maybe in this is the this is the area where Um, David promised Bathsheba that Solomon would be his heir. Now, David didn't swear this to her on his own accord. It's very, very important to know that the the parallel passages in the books of Chronicles, specifically 1 Chronicles 22 and 1 Chronicles 28, they make it very clear that all along, God wanted Solomon to be David's heir. And we're going to talk a lot about these passages in the next lesson with the construction of the temple. 
because God gave a lot of instructions to David about instructing, the, uh, preparing the table. But the instructions for the table, the temple, excuse me, the instructions for preparing the temple was given to David by God, and it was clear that Solomon would be the one to do it of all of his sons. I'll read just one passage for you in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 6. David is speaking about God, and he says, He, God, said to me, It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues to be faithful, etc., etc. All right. We'll come back to these passages later on in the next lesson, but I want to be clear in this point. I think it's evident that God says to David, Solomon is going to be your heir. He's going to build a temple. And then David at some point swears this to Bathsheba. She now is going in to remind him of this oath. And then Nathan's going to come in right afterwards. Now, again, I think this is another one of those little verses. It proves that people knew about Solomon's selection as heir. Nathan knew it. Bathsheba knew it. Others did as well. That's why Solomon was not invited to Adonijah's revelries. Okay. All right. Now, one thing that's pretty cool about this, I pulled it from your Navarre Bible, to, Navarre Bible commentary. I really like this little reflection about Bathsheba's role in God's plan of salvation and keeping things on track. And I just thought this was a nice little reflection, so I decided to put it here in the notes. It says here, quote, Bathsheba's actions have something in common with those of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Rebekah. The way these women cooperate in God's plans, leading salvation history in directions no one would have foreseen, helps us to see the way the Blessed Virgin cooperates in salvation when God makes her the mother of the Messiah, the son of David, by overruling the natural laws of human generation. I just really, that's the end of the quote, of course. I just really like that, where there are women all over the place, from Genesis all the way down to the Blessed Virgin Mary and others in the ministry of the apostles. They're, they're very much involved in God's plan of salvation. And so here you've got a pretender to the throne trying to take, uh, the, take David's authority, and Bathsheba is involved in trying to get it back on track. So I just like that. So take it for what it is, but I thought that was kind of nice. All right, so the story goes on now. Bathsheba and... Nathan successfully tell David, this is what's going on. And David will say, absolutely, I'm sticking with Solomon. Let's read a few of these verses, actually. Chapter 1, verse 28. King David said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as, I, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord... The God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so, I will do this day. So he doubles down. Clearly, his mind is sharp as ever. He's like, look, I did swear to you. I am going to make this happen. So here's what you got to do. In verses 32 and following, he gives instructions. Call Zadok the priest. Call Nathan the prophet. Call Benaniah, who is represents the military. And go have him sit on my own mule. Bring him down to the Gihon River, which flows out of Jerusalem. And anoint him there, king of Israel. Okay, so we're going to take care of this business right here, right now. And that's exactly what happened. So let me read the passages of 38 and following. So in obedience to David, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, and the Carathites and the Pelethites, and probably other mighty men and others, they all went down and caused Solomon to ride on King David's mule. And they brought him to the Gihon, it's the spring or the little river that flows out of Jerusalem. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. All right, I really love that. Everyone is so, like, 
excited and jacked up and just celebratory that they the earth is split by the noise of celebrating Solomon as the successor of David. So there's a lot going on here in this little story. Number one, he rides in on a mule. He does not ride in on a mighty war horse, and various individuals have pointed this out. In the ancient Near Eastern world and also in the Greco-Roman world, a conqueror, a king, an emperor comes marching into his capital or into a city on a mighty war horse, right? Because he's the champion and he overthrows his enemies and all of this, but not the king of Israel, not the Davidic king. He comes in riding on a mule, which is an animal of service. It's a beast of burden. And that's very, very significant because the king of Israel, and I shared this uh, with it, with you before in the previous studies on First uh, and Second Samuel, uh, the the king is the bridegroom of the people, right? So the, the people of Israel are like the bride of the king. That's this metaphorical relationship that they have. The king is supposed to protect his people and provide for her and defend her and sustain her like a husband would lovingly do for his wife and his family. And so this is symbolized by an animal of service where you're going to come in for the intention of serving your people. You don't come in as a conqueror of your people. You don't come in as you know exerting your authority over your people. Uh, only a weak man would do that, right? So that's immediately a very cool contrast of what is going on here versus in other cultures. Solomon is the groom, the husband of Israel, and he is called to serve her. All right, so that's number one. Now, there's a little quote here uh, from another commentary for your Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, which says, Anointing involves pouring oil upon the head of a candidate, whether a prophet, priest, or king. It is a sign of the Spirit coming down upon the recipient. A little short comment here, but what I like, I said a ton, I talked about this a ton. If you go back to the study on Samuel, specifically lessons three and four, when talking about the anointing of Saul and the anointing of David, uh, there's a lot I said there about how, what the anointing symbolizes, and it's a type of confirmation, and it's just, there's a lot to say about the Christian being anointed by the Spirit as well. So go back, by all means, check out that Bible study on on. Second Samuel, or First and Second Samuel lessons two and three specifically, for all the connections with the Christian life. All right, but what I will point out here is that this entry, this beautiful celebratory entry into Jerusalem, uh, riding a mule while everybody is geeking out, is definitely a connection to Jesus. On Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, everybody knows what's happening here. Everybody is proclaiming Jesus as the son of David, who has come to restore and transform and upgrade the Davidic kingdom. In fact, Mark says that as much. If you go to the parallel passages in the, in the four gospels, Jesus comes in riding on a beast of burden and everybody says, Hosanna in the highest, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Mark, it's clear, blessed, they said, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of David. They know that Jesus is acting like a new King Solomon, because this is how Solomon rode into Jerusalem, goes to the Gihon, is anointed, and he takes his throne. So for, well, ever since the Babylonian captivity now, everybody is waiting for the new Davidic king to come, uh, the, the Messiah, the Mashiach, right? And when so Jesus comes in riding on, on a donkey, and everybody is singing Hosanna in the highest, there's a lot to say here with the the triumphal entry and connect it with the Psalms and just beautiful things going on. But, and, and I have these passages for you in your notes, specifically Zechariah chapter nine prophesied the coming of the king on a donkey. I don't want to turn this into a study on the, uh, the gospels, but I definitely want you to understand Jesus coming into the city 
is 100% an echo of Solomon doing it, and everybody knows it. That's why they say, blessed is the the coming of the king of David. Jesus is the new king, and he is coming to take his throne. Now, one little difference here is Jesus takes his throne when he mounts the cross. Right. This is how he establishes his kingdom when he goes upon the cross. There's, there's a little bit of a, a discontinuity right there. Solomon begins to reign after he enters the city. Jesus begins to reign when he is crucified. And there's one more little bit of typology, which I have not seen made before. I could be totally wrong, therefore, so take it with a grain of salt. So what happens with Jesus, Jesus is coming into the city, and he is proclaimed king. Great, just like Solomon was. So when Solomon comes into the city, He's anointed and proclaimed king. Remember that he had opposition. So his brother Abiathar and Joab and, sorry, his brother, excuse me, Adonijah and the priest Abiathar and the military commander Joab and others, many others, rebelled against Solomon and opposed Solomon. In that way, I personally think that Joab and Abiathar and Adonijah and others, they are types of the rebellious Jews and the religious establishment and the authority of the Sanhedrin who rebel against Jesus, the new Solomon. I think that's the deeper connection of what's going on here. Solomon is anointed king, but he has opposition from the establishment. So just like Jesus, the new Solomon comes in, is proclaimed king, is anointed king and takes his throne on the cross, but he too is opposed by the religious establishment. So you can take that little further connection to prayer and think about that. Alrighty, so after this happens, everybody hears, all the supporters of Adonijah hear about what has happened, how Solomon was made king and crowned, and it says, the scripture says, they trembled, right? So Adonijah quickly runs to the altar in supplication for mercy, and I want to point one little verse out for you. In chapter 1, verse 52, Solomon says, If he proves to be a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So he says, look, brother Adonijah, I'm not going to kill you if you prove worthy and loyal and steadfast. No more shenanigans. I am the king. This is God's will. This is David's will, our father's will. I am king. So if you remain loyal, not one of your hairs will fall to the ground. And this, my friend, I believe is another connection to Absalom. I haven't seen this before, but I think I think Solomon is saying, don't forget what happened to Absalom. And if you go back to his story, remember Absalom was a good-looking guy. Now, what was the, one of the most distinguishing parts of his, his features, his characteristics, is his hair. He was good-looking, but he had like flowing locks of gorgeous hair, and he was very vain and prideful about that, and it ended up being his downfall. And there's some more connections here with uh, the the wise, clever woman. Uh, approaching David. You have to go back to the Bible study and see. But the point is, the point is that Absalom fell because of his hair. And so David is saying, hey, if you're loyal, you won't be like Absalom. If you're disloyal, you will die just like Absalom. And the reference to the hairs on your head is 100%, I believe, Solomon's wise little, maybe not so subtle, reference to what happened to Adonijah's big brother. You see what I mean? All right. So just stay loyal and it's all going to be fine. So that's chapter one. Now let's go into chapter two here and and study David's final words to Solomon and how it echoes so many other great leaders of the Old Testament that we've seen so far. So let's read chapter two, verses two and following. Hey, this is Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for listening to this course sample. If you enjoyed it and want to listen to the entire lesson, please become a student over at scriptureandtradition.com where you can listen to this entire course, but also all the other courses that we have available in the ST Audio Library where you can listen to them on demand, however and whenever you want. 
So thank you so much. God bless you and keep studying your Bible. 